You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Hi, I'm Bryman Williams. We're back with the small print, and today our guest is Dr. Beth Singler. As usual, we like our guests to start by introducing themselves the way that they would like to be introduced. So, Beth, can you tell us who you are? <laughs> I am the Junior Research Fellow in Artificial Intelligence at Homerton College at the University of Cambridge. Uh, I like to give a little shorthanded version of what I do. Uh, that is, I think about what you think about machines that might think. I got it down to sort of like tweet length at some point after several years of research. Uh, but basically, I'm an anthropologist who studies what we dream and imagine about AI and how we're going to implement it in our lives, what kind of impact it's going to have, the societal issues, the ethical issues. I do lots of different things. Yeah, so how technology shapes us and then we shape it and in turn and this infinite cycle that we keep on going through. Yeah. But the conversation that I really wanted to have with you today is something that ties into a lot of what we've been talking about on the show. The show is called The Small Print. We're trying to get into current and future policy issues. So anything that is the intersection between technology, trends and society and the state itself. And I think that one of the themes that has definitely come through quite strongly is that essentially we kind of have two basic models on which we can build our society, either a society based on control or a society based on trust. And I'm quite interested to see and unpack with you how technology plays into those two worldviews. And I think particularly where it gets quite interesting is actually on the trust side, because on the control and tech-based side, I think people have quite a good understanding of how technology can shape very control-based societies. We've seen demonstrations in various places across the world. But on the trust side, it gets more interesting because another form of trust is this idea of faith, right? I mean, throughout society, some of our human history, some of our most stable societies have been based on faith or a common religion. And that's where mm -hmm. I think your work comes in on quite an interesting space to say how belief and faith in technology could be a way to build a more trust-based rather than a more control-based society, mm -hmm. for better or for worse. After all, as we like to say about technology, you know, it's, it, it's really indistinguishable from magic if we don't understand how it works. <laughs> and for most of us, it's yeah. complete magic at this point. Very <laughs> few of us understand the technology that governs and leads our lives. Mm -hmm. So following yeah. on from, from that opening, do you have any initial <laughs> thoughts? Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's really at the core of my research. And I, I've come at artificial intelligence in a slightly unusual way, having been a religious studies scholar, mostly contemporary new religious movements. So yeah, the, the, the newly emerging forms of religion and faith and practice and belief. And uh, for, for many people, that intersection of religion and technology is a very unusual one. They, they come with some presumptions about living in a secularized society, technology being part of an overall transition to a greater level of human rationality, which would obscure or even completely negate any religious beliefs. Uh, so I, I come with a much more open mind. To, to the idea that, as you say, our forms of technology take those places of our faith systems. They do integrate and they entangle with contemporary religions as well. But you see in the public discourse when people are not necessarily overtly religious, they're implicitly religious. They'll use religious narratives and tropes to talk about things like AI in particular 
because as you say it's it's this thing for many people that's very non-transparent it's obtuse it's it's esoteric in so many ways uh so, so yes absolutely some of my work is about tracing some of these lines of continuous entanglement between the religious imagination and the technological imagination and when it comes to trust there's also that sort of question of whether we lean into too much trust in these systems and that becomes as you say a kind of credo or a faith that these machines or these ideas can do so much more for humanity than humans can do and you see this in discourse around democracy uh the future of technology where we're going and it's not i'm not being negative about it i just want to explore how that rolls out and how it shapes our, our imaginations i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing it's just a very human thing to do yeah, absolutely. I'm also very interested in that intersection between trust and technology. Because mm -hmm. at the moment, we've kind of got these different worldviews playing out in that space, particularly with around the intersection around how it interplays with democracy itself. Mm -hmm. But when you start talking about trust-based technologies, you've got a whole lot of people working on the blockchain and crypto and Bitcoin space who are trying to create trustless systems. So yeah. almost replacing trust altogether. And on the other hand, you've got much more sort of artificially intelligence types of governance models that are asking us to trust blindly in machines. There's a, mm -hmm. there's a subtle distinction between those two. And there's also yeah. interesting questions that unpack whether replacing trust in people with trust in technology or building trustless societies is necessarily mm. a utopian end or if it could actually become quite dystopian. Because when we lose trust in individuals and replace it with trust in a sort of oracle that sits between us, that almost does devolve into sort of religious faith in the system, mm -hmm. particularly mm -hmm. since these systems are ironically built by ourselves and are premised on information and code and data that we've placed into the system. And I think some of the issues that come through there are what happens when you've got garbage coming into the system and you are trusting yeah. in bad data or you're trusting in good systems but are, but are being premised on false information. Yeah, we absolutely. start to choose falsity into fact. <laughs> I, I think also, I mean, you, you, you make that distinction between uh, trust-based systems and more sort of esoteric faith-based systems. I think there's an overlying meta level of trust that says, even with things like blockchain and cryptocurrencies, that this, this is the direction of travel. There's a trust in the direction of travel as well. So even if the technology itself is based on moving away from trust in human-to-human -human relationships, the idea that this is the way that we're going has that level of trust as well. And going to, to, your, to your further point there as well, I think we've seen some specific hot point tension moments where trust in the system breaks down because of this assumption that the machines, the machines, I'm personifying, I know, but the machines can be more trustworthy because they're rational, they're denuded of all these messy human emotions that come out of millions of years of evolution. But then you get moments like in the UK, we had the A-level algorithms that very simplistic systems that just valued people's uh, biographic data, their school's biographic data, and gave them predicted grades for that year where they couldn't do exams or they're still having problems doing exams. And the pushback against that was, as, as I did there accidentally, very personified of, you know, F the algorithms. But as you say, it's, it's the data going into these systems that are making the decisions that still very... Uh, tainted in some ways by our human biases. So we have to be careful where we place those trust, those levels of trust and where we should have more of a hermeneutics of suspicion. 
Uh, I, I tend to class myself generally as an agnostic when it comes to technology and religion, uh, where agnos agnosticism originally comes from. But uh, I think if we all approach the rollout of new technologies of algorithms that make decisions about us with suspicion and care and caution, rather than rushing into this is the bright new shiny thing and trusting too soon and trusting people who tell us to trust as well, we have to be very careful about that. But it also requires huge levels of education for the general populace. I think certainly in my UK context, I don't feel that there is much education on what is an algorithm, what is a decision-making system, what decisions are being made for you already. Um, so that's another concerning issue. Oh, absolutely. That education piece is so critical because if we have vast swaths of our population who are just blindly trusting that the algorithm knows best, you really are deferring to a faith-based rather than a trust-based yeah. system. Again, we're sort of blindly trusting mm -hmm. but without understanding. And I think that, that conversation is quite a nice parallel with everything that's gone on over the last sort of 18 months in terms of trust the science versus sort of trust the scientific method, right? Yeah. So, and that's also broken down a lot of trust in science and sort of in the same vein, also broken down trust in technology because science and technology are seen to be on very similar sides of the, the general coin. So mm -hmm. I think that we're grappling with a lot of distrust with the, the lay person that isn't very close to these systems, but at the same mm. time, you're almost having a lot of push towards getting people to accept being governed and managed by these systems on a, on a greater and greater level, both in the mm -hmm. public and in the private sector. But when your actual life and access to services and access to opportunities is being gatekept by an immutable machine rather than by a sort of mutable human being that you can mm -hmm. negotiate with, on the one hand, things become more fair because everyone's been governed by the same rule. But by the other token, you get more sort of entrenched inequality and in that the same rule is always being applied. So I like to say that mm. quite often the sort of margin or the happiness in life comes through in the mess and the sort of imperfections. There's yeah. always something to be said about yeah. imperfect information. And are there ways to bake imperfections into our systems in, mm. in a way to actually improve fairness, ironically yeah. speaking? Yeah, so I think uh, as an anthropologist, we really do muddle around in the messiness of human nature. And I think there, there's the broader dichotomy between the natures of the sciences comes into play here as well. That the application of computer sciences of artificial intelligence has always been alongside the harder sciences without much conversation with arts and humanities scholars. And when it does happen, and I've been in spaces where that attempt has been made, it's almost like people are speaking two different languages. Whereas actually, I think there, if that happened more often, we could learn more from each other. I think that there are benefits for even messy anthropologists to learn a little bit more from the hard sciences. But I think if you can apply some of those human-centered scientific approaches to the application of artificial intelligence. And there are, there are people who are attempting that, uh, but sometimes uh, there's a whole big conversation we can have about ethics washing that the application of humanities to computer sciences can just be an optional add-on where you just hire a few people and then don't listen to what they say, don't take on board their recommendations, just have it as like a kind of PR stunt and that's not beneficial to anyone. But as a larger conversation, if those two sides were in more conversation with each other than some of these elements, uh, the risks, the dangers that we see with the application of automated decision-making systems would be hopefully mitigated. But um, I think I wanted to go to your point there. You're saying the application of rules, the difference there, I think you're absolutely right, between equality and justice. 
if you treat everyone exactly the same, you're not recognizing previous deficiencies. Uh, and that was partially why the A-level algorithm was so poor, because it treated everyone at particular schools as though they had no uh, ability to ascend the previous level of the school kids in that school. So the, the messiness of human nature, the ability to break the paradigm of the circumstance in which you grew up has to be factored in. And that's why, you know, AI systems, they're correlation machines. They're not innovation machines. We see, we see r remarkable things being, ha being done with AI, but it's all sort of the algorithmic approach of relying on previous data. It makes it very hard for, for those spark moments, uh, which is why I still obviously think that humans and anthropologists in particular are very useful. Yeah, exactly what you're saying there. A lot of the systems, in fact, all the systems that we have, if you look at artificial intelligence and machine learning as we know it, are backwards looking. They're not forwards looking. They can only ever work with historical data. And we know yeah. from trying to do forecasts, life doesn't actually work that way. We have messy, complicated problems. And unfortunately, though, however you try and fix that algorithm, you're always going to leave something out. I mean, this is complexity, right? Everything yeah. is connected, but you can't put everything into any particular model because that would be as complicated as building the whole universe all yeah. over again, which is something we can't like physically do. I mean, there's yeah. always so that's like Godel sort of maths, you know, like how do you ever get to the bottom and start again to, to oh, replicate yeah. absolutely everything? For, for some people, simulation theory would say that that is possible, even if we can't do it now, but perhaps other entities have done it before and we're in that completely simulated universe. I, like I say, I'm agnostic about many things, but that also seems to me to be a very much a faith-based statement as well. Yes, it's quite interesting how these conversations keep on going back to faith and religion. I think there is a lot of interconnectivity right there in that space. Mm -hmm. And I think it's coming from a sense of helplessness on the one hand, but it also could be seen from a sort of power dynamics thing where we actually being told that we should be trusting systems, that we should be sort of worshiping them like we used to worship the Catholic Church and just follow the rules because the rules say so. So it's kind of being pushed by both the, the powerful mm -hmm. and the powerless. But if you mm -hmm. are completely powerless, it is in human nature to build mythology around systems mm -hmm. that trap us in ways that we can't actually influence ourselves. Yeah. Do you have anything to say there about how people have responded? People not in the academic space, mm -hmm. but ordinary individual citizens whose lives have been mm -hmm. influenced by these, by these sorts of algorithmic governance systems, yeah. how people are responding from a mystical and a practical perspective. Well, from, from a, briefly from a religious studies perspective, I would add that, yes, you can have a sort of deprivation theory of religion and say that we, when we're trapped in systems and we feel like we're deprived and we don't have access to power, we draw on religious conceptions. But you can have also an aesthetic uh, definition of religion, that people get involved with religious ideas because they enjoy them, because they illuminate their lives in particular ways and their imaginations are inspired by them. So there's that sort of the two, two general approaches there. But yes, absolutely, when it comes to conceiving of these automated systems that guide and recommend certain outcomes for our lives, we do draw on the religious narratives and tropes, as I mentioned, and some of my work specifically has looked at uh, discourse online that conceives of uh, particularly recommendation systems in the gig economy or for content creators, people saying things like, today I've had a good day, I've been blessed by the algorithm. So this uh, conception, you know, a little bit tongue in cheek. Uh, a lot of my work is looking at parody and humor, but it recognizes that narratives and tropes are continuous. So people feeling like the machine 
the machine has made a decision on their behalf that was either beneficial. There are also cursed by the algorithm tweets, but I didn't find quite so many. But this idea that a decision has been made by this all-powerful entity behind the scenes and that has helped them, then obviously they draw on existing ways of talking about a theistic god. Uh, sometimes it's a, a polytheistic interpretation with many different algorithms, but quite often because of the context, mostly I look at sort of Western English speaking context, uh, the monotheistic god up there somewhere making decisions is usually the way people go. Um, and I think that's that's interesting to, to recognize. I don't think it necessarily means that every single one of those people tweeting those things has a completely religious conception. But for some people, they take it further. They're developing new religious movements around artificial intelligence, trying to make this into a kind of a religious interpretation of transhumanism as well as a way of thinking about the universe and where we're going. Or for some people, it's more pragmatic that they want to use the... the um, the tools of religion to encourage people into transhumanist and futurist ideas, that this is a way they see historically religion has been a good way of inspiring people to particular actions for good or for ill. Uh, and if you can employ those techniques, you can get people into the view of the future and humanity that they want them to have. So there's all these things playing with each other. And as I mentioned, existing traditional religions also interacting with artificial intelligence and machine learning and thinking about what the future is for them as well in a world they see as potentially having things like you know automated assistants walking alongside you as robots so there's that whole conversation as well so it's 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 several layers of entanglement as well as very strongly atheist interpretations as well as i mentioned saying that things like artificial intelligence will increase humanity's overall rationality will get rid of religion it'll just go at some point as another interpretation. It is, but of course, when you get into the, the more militant sort of strata of atheism, it tends to become almost a belief-based space system in and of itself. So, yeah, they don't tend to like it. No, they don't tend to like it when you say that, no. Um, yeah, it, that is the difficulty, because for me, I don't think saying something looks like a religion or could be a religion is a negative thing. But if no. you're an atheist, to say that, that's hugely harmful for their perspective. Uh, so there has been some times when I've presented on some of my work saying, you know, this looks like this looks like implicit religion or this looks like religion. You, you can't say that that's harmful to your informants, the people you've been talking to. And I, I don't see it that way, but I can understand that perspective. If you've seen religion, quotation marks, as a very difficult, dangerous thing that you want to get rid of, you, of course, don't want to be compared to it. No, but I think that the language that it becomes a bit more inclusive there is to talk about sort of the true believer. So going back to more sort of political philosophy, because mm -hmm. some of the more sort of extreme points of view on your more extreme atheist communities and, and outlooks on the world are mm -hmm. essentially a belief because it's a belief without substance. It's a belief that you, that cannot be, be proven. So that's where you sort of find the sort of common ground when you have those yeah. conversations. But I do understand where they're saying that it's not the same as a religion. Yeah. Well, I did want to pick up on though was in terms of the language you were talking about like when you look at something like a simulation theory is very similar to a creation myth I mean that's mm -hmm. essentially what it really is and yeah. on the other end of the scale you've got this sort of singularity which is almost like a heaven reincarnation myth that sort of yeah. ties together with all the transhumanism threads and also filters into political theory quite a lot because mm -hmm. essentially the singularity has huge parallels with sort of one world order and national global sort of governance trends you know so I think yeah. that that they are definitely parallels across the religious and across the sort of political macro trends 
in history that you start to draw together quite secular communities with quite religious communities and find quite a lot yeah. of commonality in the story from there to wherever we headed next. Yeah, I think, I mean, you definitely see this in the singularity science fiction. So it's for, it's not a coincidence that Strauss and Dr. O called their, their book Rapture of the Nerds, right? So taking the Christian evangelical conception of the rapture and the end of days and adding it to the nerds, you know. And in, in that book, if you do, do you know it, but it has, you know, the comparison of the people who've been raptured, the people who stayed behind and the religious fundamentalists. And there's a parallel being drawn out there between the really gung-ho transhumanists and the religious fundamentalists so this is not you know the conversation is is following behind science fiction in a way that uh that speculative space gets people to some of these questions before the general like academic discourse can get there sometimes which is wonderful because then i have something i can refer back to and i'm writing something on that at the moment but yeah absolutely i think that the overall kind of accelerationist exponential view of history has so much in common with religious conceptions of the view of history as well. Um, that we're going somewhere, something is going to happen and you can shape that in so many different ways and cultures have done previously. This is the, this is the techno version if you like, but the, the similarities of beyond this point, we don't really know what the world's going to look like. Are we going to have physical forms? Are they going to be transformed? Are we going to join with a god mind in that version of the singularity where we upload ourselves and become some sort of hive mind or you know there's so many interpretations of the singularity which is one of the wonderful things about it you know there's no singular singularity um and the dystopian as well obviously you know with the conception of the singularity as a single entity ai that could be harmful to us it's very kind of you know the wrathful god version of the singularity which comes out in pop culture obviously things like the matrix and the terminator and then you get that iterative circle of the pop culture. It is informed by those things, but it informs our public discourse as well. So many times people are talking about online Skynet, you know, any Boston Dynamics video of really great dancing robots. It's, oh no, you know, what's next? Skynet turns up and we're all gonna die. So we have these shorthands come from science fiction and our religious conception of AI and they all intermingle with each other and inform each other. Why is it, do you think, that so many of those shorthands, those sort of summaries to make sense of the, the really terrible reality that we're sort of like these naked apes that are stuck on a rock that's hurtling around <laughs> a burning star and we actually have no idea where we came from or where we're going. Why is it so many of those simplifications end up with the same sorts of narratives? So I, I do find it quite fascinating that the sort of end goal is always some sort of transcendence over and above our current human incarnation. Yeah. And if you go sort of far enough back in time, whether you're talking about a simulation or a creation or a big mm. bang theory, there's almost there, we want to have a before and we want to have an after and we want to have some sort of progress. Why yeah. is it that all of our myths, the secular and religious, all seem to sort of fall into that same pattern? I'm a big Terry Pratchett fan, and you know that whole uh, thing of sort of yes. narrativeum, you know? Like yeah. it's, it's like there's these narrative <laughs> patterns, and we, yeah. we were sort of stuck to them. Uh, I, I mean, I'm such a Pratchettian philosopher. I think he, he gets to so many of the places I, I get to as well. He's just amazing. So I completely agree that, you know, we are telling stories to ourselves to make ourselves human. We tell ourselves the small stories so we can understand the big stories, as he says, of like love and trust and justice. Um, yeah, I, I, you can sort of say it's something to do with ego that we don't want to believe there was nothing before us and there'll be nothing after us or that the universe continues on with wh whatever we do. 
Um, I think you see that particularly in the transhumanist narratives about de developing our mind children, this idea that even if we as physical humans fail and end and our civilization doesn't succeed, but perhaps we create robot offspring of some kind or AI offspring that make it out into space and continue the conception of civilization. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a very basic human concern about the nature of death and the fear of insignificance, I suppose. But uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, to simplify it like that doesn't simplify the variety of narratives, I think. You can say it's generated by these sort of very basic fears, but the way in which it plays out in different cultural contexts and different even between people can be so different. And I think that's the, the variety and the richness of human experience is what colors those stories in different ways. Um, but I don't, I don't think anyone's completely immune to that fear. It's just how we demonstrate it, how we, how we tell our stories to ourselves. You said something really interesting just there where you were talking about how different cultures approach, obviously, the sort of creation and end of days myths quite differently. Mm -hmm. But have you noticed in your work as an anthropologist how different societies are reacting and adapting to essentially being sort of enslaved, if you want to use that word, or at least sort of having to pay tribute to various different sort of tech control or God type systems that are you know, mm. wielding real power in their lives. Have different societies reacted and adapted differently? Yeah, I think in this space, in this conversation, there tends to be this very strong East-West dichotomy that I'm, I'm hesitant to employ ever. I think a lot has been written and assumed about how Westerners view technology versus East. And I think it, it is a gross generalization and it misses out so many countries as well that do not fit neatly into that East, West or first world, second world, third world. You know, there's so many varieties of ways of framing how our cultures are different from each other without recognizing some of the similarities. So with a religious studies background, I think it's quite interesting how we in I'm going to use the West, uh, ignore the animism that is all around us every single day and assume that other cultures do more of that sort of thing because they're different and less progressed in some ways. There's a sort of, there's a, certainly with the East-West dichotomy, there's an Orientalism going on there, like a techno-Orientalism. Um, I don't think it's as simple as some of those dichotomies would have it, that we have a more dystopian view because we're more free-willed and uh, more libertarian. There's all these kind of narratives that come out about why we push back more against these uh, assumptions about machines making decisions and then we develop the Terminator, but that's only one story out of so many. Um, and assumptions about what happens in Japan um, misses some of the, the granular differences in reactions. Um, so I think what's really interesting for anthropologists doing work around the world is to bring out these examples that push back against that simplification. Um, there's so many countries doing so many different things in reaction to this. And it, it can break down when you get a country like uh, North America that's so broad and so diverse in its responses to state governance, uh, to to the minutia of each individual has their own response. I think it's too much to just say like North America, the Western society reacts in this particular way. But that's again, that goes to what you were saying earlier, like that's the messiness of human nature. It doesn't make for an easy narrative, an easy way of seeing how people respond. Well, that's why you've got a job, right? I mean, that's... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Not just me, though. You know, lots of people are doing work in this sphere. Uh, yeah, and I'd like to carry on doing it for as long as possible because I think it is fascinating to think about how we mesh that view of the world as very rational versus the irrationality of the human and where the biting points are. And I think uh, in particular, as I said, with 
outcomes like the A-level algorithm and the response there and other specific flashpoints. It's, it's not enough just to say culturally we're doing this. It's like, what is the immediate reaction to an application of AI that went wrong? You know, we have to see what those are and see how humans are reacting to them. Yeah, maybe I can go back to that question again in a slightly different way based on your sort of religious studies background and say if it's not as simple as you say as East, West or certain countries looking at it in different ways. But have you noted any correlations, commonalities or not between how societies that have been framed by different major religions have responded to technology creeping mm -hmm. into more day to day basis? Because obviously societies that have been sort of brought up in a more sort of Protestant ethic have quite different foundational understandings to them to cultures that believe in more sort of circular reincarnation, right? So linear yeah. and circular type faith-based systems. Mm -hmm. are, there, are there differences there in terms of responsiveness or how technology yeah. has been integrated into religious worldviews or lack thereof? Yeah, it's, it's another space where unfortunately you've come down to using these categories of saying, Muslims respond in this way or Jews respond in this way and it's it's not ever as simple as that so that's the difficulty of working in that space as well and I'm working on an edited volume we have some fantastic contributors mm. who are coming at AI from a particular religious perspective but they cannot cover the whole response of Islam to AI for instance no. so um, but yeah there there is that assumption that the more kind of hierarchical model of religion fits perhaps more securely with a hierarchical control from above. Again, like fitting AI into the God space. But that, again, like I say, that, that misses out the different, uh, the different theodicies, the different theologies, the, the different responses to the nature of the human in different religions. The, the creation stories are similar in some, but they are fundamentally different as well. And sometimes we, uh, the summary in some areas of uh, academia of you know the Abrahamic religions or Judeo-Christian values like misses the differences that really mark out what is very unique about those faiths and within those faiths as well. Um, so again, it's very difficult. It's the messiness of human nature, but I think it is interesting to see, as you say, uh, where we assume a linear approach and where we see a more circular approach and how those actually uh, intersect with each other in some countries. Obviously, no country is monolithic in its religion. Uh, where actually our assumptions that a religion is linear, can, you can find many counterexamples. As I said, with the Western assumption that there is no animism going on, like, yeah, actually look at look at christianity's history in the uk and its intersection with the existing pagan beliefs and the medieval church that even today i mean we're surrounded by so much history i mean you, you find the green man on cathedrals you know that the, the intersection the the relationship is much closer than uh, we can lay out easily uh so it's an interesting space to be working on and it again it's one that involves getting in touch with so many people from different faiths and understanding their perspectives and understanding how it's working out in communities. Because as I, get, I said, with the, these tension points, these hot point moments, it's not just about the philosophy and the theology, it's how it actually works out in practicality. So for instance, when uh, Sophia the Hansen robot was given, I'm gonna do quotation marks, citizenship of Saudi yeah. Arabia. I mean, that is a, that's a tension moment because obviously the, the, the role of the discussion on women's rights in that country, but also the Islamic perspective on creation and co-creation with God. Like, how does that play out in a theological perspective for Muslims? And on chat boards and you know, forum boards, there was lots of discussion of, you know, is this, 
is this sin in some way to create something that looks like a human and to try and take the place of God in creation? Um, so I'm, uh, as I say, I'm agnostic on all these positions, but I'm interested in how, how that's played out in a Christian context versus a Muslim context and so on. Yeah, so listening to what you're saying, from a bottom-up perspective, humans are humans, we messy, you can't actually put us into neat boxes. However, from a legislative perspective, some societies are literally governed by religious law and others are yeah. governed by secular principles and constitutions. So mm -hmm. there you are going to see a difference in how different societies deal with these sorts of things as man created sort of authorities and gods start to interact with societies that already have religion baked into their very essence of what mm -hmm. the nation state is. So perhaps then we will see some of the, the earlier sort of ripples as to how this plays out coming through from the more religious societies because they would have to deal with those questions in ways that more secular legislative societies don't have to deal with. So I think the point you made there about looking at Sophia, which did take place in a more religious society, is quite an interesting point. But I yeah. suppose it opens up more questions than it answers, saying that maybe that's why they did it, right? Because they are yeah. thinking about these things in a different way. Yeah. I mean, it's, Saudi Arabia is a very interesting case of uh, having a strong religious perspective, but also having a very strong technological perspective of wanting particularly around the the event where that was announced that was a particular I'm trying to remember the name but it will come back to me later you know the the space in which they were announcing plans for Noam like the, the long city of technology and claims that it was going to be mostly populated by robot servants I mean this is a hugely speculative space hugely uh, techno optimist so the PR machine involved in that and as you say, this may have been a provocative moment intentionally to raise some of these discussions and concerns. Uh, and yeah, I just I think it's really, as I was saying, you know, even the very secular governments are so informed by their religious roots. And it does come out in legislation, what we're seeing at the moment in Texas and America as well. You know, these elements are still there. So for for more fundamentalist religions that have very strict opinions on what the human is and what the human isn't, we'll see tension points there. If the assumption is that we're creating things that are human-like, I mean, I'm skeptical about that, but that is the direction that people claim to be going in, there'll be more and more conversation from a religious perspective. And we've seen some of it, like, you know, there's the, the Baptist Convention in America set out their own AI principles, and they said things very clearly like, uh, um, a machine is not a person, it cannot be treated like a person. We're going to make this very strong delineation. And that was thoroughly based on their conception of theology and the nature of God and creation. So in those instances where even secular societies have these roots in particular views of the human, we'll st still see these sorts of tension points and moments of conflict. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we can look at so many of our laws that have been shaped by religious overtones, whether it's marriage rights or gender yeah. rights or whatever the question is. So many of those conversations still have a religious subtext, even mm -hmm. in a supposedly secular environment. And quite often the justification for laws being repealed or imposed are still based on religious ideas, not on practical ideas. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's definitely going to come into play. I mean, I think that we'll probably see some of the biggest pushback in terms of robot rights coming through from religious communities and not actually from the sort of displaced worker class, which is mm -hmm. where the conversation normally goes to. I think the stronger mm. points in terms of legislation are still around those, those feelings and those faith-based feelings, because yeah. that's what people really care about. And something that I've been looking at when it comes to policy or whether 
it comes to pleasing your target market, the most sensible thing to do is to pander to the person with the strongest view in the room, not the person with the biggest base, right? I mean, yeah. this is the sort of the game theory on the, the tyranny of the minority. If you've got a small group that feels very strongly about something, they're going to have an outsized say as to what direction society goes in. From yeah. your perspective, have you looked at any of those small groups that might be come the future lobbyists in this space? Yeah, I mean, they're very, uh, they're very emergent and they overlap with so many other concerns and groups. So, I mean, you do see elements of anti-transhumanism online, uh, which overlaps with some of the interesting, like the, the anti-vaxxers communities as well. Um, there's, there's the whole kind of fear of technological advance control, as you're talking about as well, and a very kind of dystopian view of the future. Also, as I said, very much fed by science fiction. I think uh, the, as much as I love things like Westworld, they've given fuel to the fire of particular interpretations of where technology is going. So you do see these sorts of reactions. Um, I think there's some very good work being done on studying uh, emergent dangerous groups out there that I'm not directly connected with. But I think that's a space in which paying attention to people who are concerned about technology and taking it that step further. Uh, we have a history of that. Um, various different manifestos written in the past about preventing this technological future and how that's been acted out by particular individuals. So we need to be aware of that. And it, the wider, more diffuse anti-science, anti-tech dialogue as well, the discourse around that, that we're seeing again in this sphere of responding to COVID and the pandemic. These things all feed into each other and QAnon and uh, the kind of the more conspiracist groups as well. They do they do interfeed and feed with each other. So it's very hard to follow what's absolutely going on. But it's an interesting sphere. Yeah. And for, in terms of religious leaders and groups, are we seeing mm. sort of policy suggestions coming through from places like the Vatican or from the various different religious yeah, councils? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Space? So I mentioned the Baptist, Southern Baptist Convention had their own AI principles, um, obviously very much informed by their view of the inerrancy of the uh, the Bible and its literacy, literalness. Um, yeah, the Vatican has responded. There's been several workshops and seminars around AI and robotics at the Vatican. Uh, this, I don't know if there's much in the way of a formal statement that's come out of those. I have to check. But uh, yeah, various different established traditional religions are seeing this as something that's going to affect society. It's There is an element of dealing with the personification of AI, but they're also concerned about the role of, out of automation uh, in impacting workers, impacting society, increasing inequality. And this is this is a conversation they've been involved in, all these religious groups for many, many centuries of speaking up for the deprived. Um, and this is just recognizing that technology has the potential to, as I say, raise inequality and cause greater problems for people who are already uh, disenfranchised. That's not to say that they aren't also talking about the personification of AI. In fact, I ran several workshops on AI and faith for different religious leaders uh, in the UK. And it was actually, sometimes I think the appetite for talking about things like the singularity and the exponential growth of AI was greater because, I don't know, again, it goes back to aesthetics, I suppose. The, uh, the desire to talk about the science fiction interpretations of what we're going to do about them perhaps outweighed. But I think... On the whole, the conversation seems to cover both areas. 
That's a really interesting point because I mean, over the, the course of the last couple of centuries, the, all the various different religious institutions have had to get their heads around what evolution meant for their creeds. And now they mm -hmm. have to kind of get their heads around what's the sort of the next level of evolution, the post-human sort yeah. of transition is going to mean for their creeds. So it's an interesting part of that conversation. But I did like what you were saying earlier, because quite often the sort of church or religions or any sort of faith-based groups get cast in the sort of light as being the sort of bad guy in the conversation that many mm. religions are seen as being regressive forces in society. But the, we have to look at it from a more balanced perspective and say that these groups do do a lot of good in terms of quite progressive policies in terms of things like lifting up the most vulnerable in society. Mm -hmm. They still provide yeah. a lot of charity, a lot of support for a lot of disenfranchised people as much as they cause problems in and of themselves. Yeah. So I'm not yeah. going to put myself in this sort of militant <laughs> atheist camp of or religion bad. <laughs> no, I mean, it's absolutely, it's, it's, you know, it's like Soylent Green. Relig religion is made of humans, ultimately, and humans can do good <laughs> things and they can do bad things and they can raise each other up and they can, you know, there's abuses and uh, those are, are documented. We know about the problems of religion as well. But I think having had uh, an established history of charitable giving and charitable concern places some religious groups in a particularly good place to then respond to inequality being caused by technological change. Um, it, it could be a concern if they got too concerned about the personified view of AI and didn't do that kind of work as well. Um, that's, that's one of my general concerns on the whole about public discourse, that if we, as, as I say, as much as I enjoy science fiction, if we get too caught up in the science fiction view of the future of technology and don't deal with the here and now and the cause of concern now, then that we're missing the point entirely. We, ha we can do both, but we have to be focused on what's happening at the moment. Oh, absolutely. But just like you said, I mean, like religion, like technology, which actually makes them quite good counterbalancing forces, are made by humans and can be used mm -hmm. for good or for or for ill. So they're yeah, actually, yeah. perhaps they are quite good a, a counterweight because they're both human creations that can be used to yeah. sort of prop up the flaws in, in, <laughs> in either side yeah. over there. Yeah, I, I have no problem thinking of religion as a technology. Uh, as I say, I don't come to this subject at all with any faith position myself, so I can uh, address it as something humans have created to help create society, to help work together, but also that can lead to detrimental effects as well. Um, so as long as I think, the, as I said, the, the, the hermeneutic of suspicion for advances in technology, apply that to religion as well. Absolutely. I wanted to go back to what you were saying about the danger of perhaps sort of religious groups and faith-based institutions focusing too much on the singularity and the sort of big exciting challenges ahead and too little on the here and now. Because mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting parallel to what's going on in the charity space at the moment, and particularly the effective altruism movement, which I find absolutely fascinating because essentially the whole sort of thing about deploying your funds and activity to get the biggest return on your yeah. investment, your impact investment, either goes very, very small to solving very, very small problems like, you know, killing mosquitoes, giving mosquito nets to kids, yeah. you know, like doing very small, very tangible, very sort of empirically testable things. But there's also, they, they're hugely distracted by the opposite end of the scale. So either really, really tiny in yeah. involvement or really, really big, worrying about existential crises and the singularity and all the rest yeah. of it to the point that you get where if you start donating to some of these effective altruism charities, the best way that they can justify spending your money is on creating podcasts by themselves, for themselves, <laughs> right? I mean, like, yeah. and, they, and they manage to justify this completely 
on a completely rational basis, right? By saying yeah. that the best thing we can do with anything is to sort of solve us all going extinct one day. Yeah. So how do you, how um, do you even <laughs> argue with that logic? <laughs> uh, I have written about effective altruism before, and I, I, it's slightly difficult because I do know people who are involved who again it's like talking so about very religion good people. You, very good people very, very smart you know, people humanist people who want to help people but also you know it's hard not to also make that parallel with religious belief as well yes. uh and also religious practicalities like the emphasis on basically tithing giving a proportion of your salary to the effective altruistic movement, uh, the emphasis on proselytization. Um, some are more honest about the emphasis on that than others. I've spoken to some members who say, you know, you know we're encouraged to go out and basically convert people to effective altruism. Um, I've written a bit about uh, some of their interpretations of the singularity being this very dystopic, wrathful god figure like Rocco's Basilisk that, you know, the logical outcome, I, I don't know if I want to go too deep into yeah, Rocco's yeah. Basilisk, but, you know, the, <laughs> the the most reasonable response to Rocco's Basilisk is to give money to research AI and that would be filtered well, through. Well, according to the logic, yes. I'm yeah, yeah, exactly. The whole... <laughs> it's the, the people behind... Plan. The idea almost uh, going to benefit from it, and you know, people yeah. within that community drew attention to the fact this was no different to you know the teaching they had in Sunday school that says you know once you know about the theistic Christian God, if you don't help him or work towards his desires, you're going to go to hell. So there was this parallel that's very easy to draw between the simulated hell and the the theological hell. Um, so yeah, it's a difficult difficult one because again. For some people, if you say that looks religious, that's harmful. You're comparing them to groups they don't agree with, they don't admire, and they see what they're doing as evidence-based and entirely rational. That if you follow the progression of the technology, you know, kind of Moore's Law-esque version of where we're going with artificial intelligence, then one day there will be something like Rocco's Basilisk or the Singularitarian, or we have to prepare. Um, prepare and I the do. Way. Sorry. <laughs> Prepare the way, yes. Prepare the way or, you know, yeah. prepare the, 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 the protections against. Uh, so mm. to a certain extent, I mean, it, it grows out of a lot of Nick Bostrom's ideas where he talks about the superintelligence and there's some reasonableness in being careful with AI. And I think mm. there's some brilliant people doing brilliant work in that sphere. And they also look at larger problems of existential risk, but it can kind of get out of the, their hands a bit and get wrapped up with these sort of stronger narratives of science fiction that say if we're not careful we get skynet and that's really effective for raising money as well <laughs> so there's there's all these concerns <laughs> bubbled in together yeah yeah absolutely but isn't it fascinating the way the sort of the, the logical thinking of the purely rationalist community draws to a very similar t conclusion to the completely irrational totally faith-based sort of logic so you end up drawing very, very similar, similar arcs yeah, but from very, uh, very different mindsets. I just find it fascinating when you uh, see I mean, the, the patterns the and the way we think. <laughs> the common denominator is the humanity, I suppose. Yes. That you know, as I say, we have these particular ways of conce conceiving of ourselves and our places in the universe, and it plays out in our stories. And there's some variations, obviously, but overall, we're all just trying to work out, as you say, from Terry Pratchett, where we're a bunch of naked apes on a rock rotating around a fiery globe. I mean, that's that's a scary place to be. We need to try and make sense of that. Um, and what I admired about Terry Pratchett was not only did he find a way to make sense of that, he, he encouraged other people to see the possibility of the smaller stories, as I say, helping us to believe the bigger stories about 
faith and trust and justice and hope. Oh, absolutely. I just want to go back as we sort of close this off now around the, the language and how the language around technology and AI in particular is so parallel to the language around religion. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if you've been familiar, familiar or following the story of the accursed share NFT that's going on at the moment. I, I, do, I do know NFTs as a cursed one, is there? Yes, yes, it's a, it's a website. And, and if you are interested in religion and in technology, I think you'd probably find it fascinating. Anyway, it's an NFT called a cursed share, and they've set up a website on it. And that language, again, when you were talking about sort of cursed algorithms, that's what made me think of it right now. And essentially what happened was there was a model about sort of 10 years ago. She was mm -hmm. in Fashion Week and she had a picture taken backstage that she signed an NDA for that was actually ended up being used on an article for a, for a beauty magazine. I think it was like a Condé Nast article. I think it was around sort of oily skincare, if you read the story up. Right. But anyway, her face was used on this, just like models' faces are used on various different advertisements or to accompany various pieces of text. But for some reason, her face was, as they claim on the, the website, sort of cursed by the algorithm, again, using right. the language of the sort mm -hmm. of singular, the Google algorithm, yes. picked up her face and it's, it ended up being the face that you find when you search face on Google. Right. And of course, somebody's face is, right? But it was this yeah. girl. She was. She didn't know that her face was going to be used to be the face of what a face is, according to the algorithm. And yeah. the NFT project right now is about trying to uncurse this cursed face. So in other words, to give her her own face back. And of course, mm -hmm. being an NFT, of course, there's a whole lot of bidding and a complicated game theory into right, how the yeah. tokens work. But essentially, you can essentially bid on an experience to watch her face being sort of re-revealed through the course mm -hmm. of the website. And you can sort of own that sort of 3D or wonderfully artistically done sort of mm. caricature of herself once again. So the sort of idea of decursing, sort mm. of something that's been hijacked by a system, I think is quite fascinating, particularly in light of this conversation and the language around it, how mystical it all was when it's all, all to do with pure sort of blind luck and algorithmic injustice, which just sort of picks up yeah. someone's got to be it. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's super interesting. And I'm definitely going to look into that. I think it, it, is, it is a kind of adjacent to some of the things I've been thinking about with regards to how we define the sacred and the profane, obviously Dirk Heim's ideas about basically our engagement with the items that we define as sacred and the items we define as profane, uh, profane sorry, is how we develop religion, basically, like marking out those different categories and how you can transition one into the other. Um, so there's also a touch of Mary Douglas as well about uh, taboo, you know, what makes something cursed, why is, um, why is something segregated from other things and treated special or as a negative special? A curse would be a negative. Uh, so that's really that's really interesting. And I think there's a whole area around um, liminality as well. The, the certain objects have and entities as well have this kind of sense of being betwixt and between, as Turner talked about, the anthropologist. Uh, that neither kind of one thing or another. So she's both a person, but she's also a digital entity as well. So there's lots of interesting anthropological theories and frameworks we could we could apply to that. I think the response to it is really interesting as well. Trying to decurse something. I mean, obviously, you know, techno pagans have been up to that kind of stuff for decades now. Obviously, that you know, back to the origins of the internet, there was this idea of you know creating. Um, artworks that could have particular effects it's there in science fiction as well with 
the Blitz. Do you know Blitz, the short story? It's it's actually, I think, one of the precursors to Rocco's Basilisk, this idea of okay. it, imagery, uh, imagery that can have an immediate effect on the human brain. Just the conception or the realisation of this imagery can have an effect on the human brain. It's a short story, but I think it has similarities with how people respond to the conception of Rocco's Basilisk. So there's a whole space there of cursed, uncursing, magic, again, to go back to you, cited Clark's third law, anything sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic mm -hmm. that we just mystify because we are mystified. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting sphere, and I will look into that. That sounds really interesting. I think in essence, what it really is, is trying to get back some of that control that seems to have been taken away from us by these systems that we don't have control over, that we don't fully understand. It's a way to sort of reclaim our identity as individual, messy human beings to sort of fight yeah. back against that singularity, against that singular algorithm. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think it, it's take, caught the imagination of a lot of people in the sort of tech crypto future space, I think because it comes across as a form of resistance, which is, again, quite yeah. a political thing <laughs> in yeah. the face of these monoliths. So that you was could, a... You could, you could also see the kind of the uh, inevitable end of that kind of move being this similar to the claims of the simulation, uh, sorry, the singularity theorists who say we're all going to be uploaded. So this is this is a partial uploading just of someone's face. But, you know, if the overall aim of complete total digitization of the human for eternity uh, that can go into a negative sphere as well, uh, Rocco's Basilisk being all about that, but this being instance of now contemporary, a part of her has been transformed in a particular way and to push back against it, that's really interesting. It really is. So perhaps there's some some hope for us outside of the, the singular singularity going forward <laughs> or not. I mean, like we have to be agnostic about these things. Yeah. We live in very interesting times regardless. Uh, we've almost come to the end of our hour, so I want to give you a last chance to tie together any loose threads or to clarify any points or make any points that we have missed today. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's just been a really super interesting chat for me to see your perspective on some of the aspects that I've been looking at as well. I think it's, it's good to have a conversation about this sphere and I would like people to continue having that conversation. As I said, you know, the only way we can determine a beneficial outcome for humanity is if we all engage with the topic, that we don't just rely and trust blindly that these decision-making systems are being implemented for our good and actually question why they're being implemented. So a conversation that continues, that spreads, other people get involved is all for the good. Thank you so much. And if people want to find you, if you want to be found, where can where are they allowed to find you these days? Well, I am partially digitized, I suppose, myself. I'm I'm being a mostly digital ethnographer. I am pretty much in most of the spaces you would expect to find me. I have a website, I'm on social media, I'm very Googleable. Um and yes, my face is up there. Not as the face. My face is on Google if you need to see it. So yeah, I'm very easy to find. Thank you so much. Thank you.